This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the book of James and its challenging contents. Love it or hate it, this letter often provokes very strong reactions. Yeah, Martin Luther thought this thing shouldn't even be in the canon. Whew. That is about as strong of a reaction as you can get, I think. <laughs> Of course, Martin Luther had a lot of strong reactions to a lot of things, like Jewish people. But hey, we never talk about that. Fun little ditty. Fun little. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get to that in church history. Session <laughs> five stuff. I don't know. There either, but fun little untalked about fact about Martin Luther as his rampant anti-Semitism. But I digress. Uh, I actually don't hold it against him. We're indebted to a lot of good things. But that's for session five. Let's talk about the book of James. We come to the book of James. In a lot of ways, we've kind of done all the intro work to this book, um, particularly back with the book of Acts and Galatians and talking about the three parts of the law. Brent, can you remind us of what the three parts of the law was? The ethical law, the cultic law, and the mixat masse hatara. Yes, excellent. All right, so we had those. And that kind of that's really going to set the stage. But even before we dive into that, let's just deal with the author. Let's do this one more time because I get so many fun emails about this question. Uh, the author of the book of James is a guy by the name of James. And James is, in the book, he, he calls himself the brother of Jesus the brother of Jesus. But the term there, uh, in the Hebraic mind, brother does not just mean brother, brother. Brother means kinsman. Um, So the James that you have here is probably the cousin, not the actual brother. That And that's where kind of where everybody, when we talked about James earlier in session four, um, Brent, we got a ton of questions because everybody assumes that James, the book, the author of the book of James is Jesus' brother. They connect that to a passage in John where the brothers and Jesus don't get along. And there's this really popular belief that like Jesus and his brother is like, didn't get along in his life. But then after his death, they all got saved and whatever. And it's all just kind of like this projection onto these passages we've connected together. And they're an okay, like it's an okay connection. It's just not a conclusive connection and and the Bible doesn't connect those dots for us. And so what we end up happening and what we've talked about before is the James, uh, let's go the other direction. Instead of working backwards from maybe a mistranslation and a misappropriated idea, let's, let's go the other direction. So we have Peter, James, and John who follow Jesus around. I like to call them the triumvirate. They are the three that were the inner circle the closest disciples to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he takes, if he doesn't take the 12 and he needs to take just a smaller group, he always takes Peter, James, and John. One of the relevant stories is when Jesus goes out to pray at the end of his ministry, the end of his life, that night of Passover, he takes them out to celebrate Lyel Shimmerim, is what you call it in the Hebrew. Lyel Shimmerim, that's the night of watching. And the tradition there is that the firstborn sons go out for Lyle Shimmerim, and they keep watch because in the story of the Passover, God kept watch, Exodus 12 says, God kept watch over you, therefore you are for generations to come to keep watch on the night of Passover. And the Jews decided that the ones that would keep watch would be the firstborn sons since they were the ones that were spared in the story of Passover. What that means is that what Jesus is doing when he takes Peter, James, and John is he's likely taking the firstborn sons of the Talmudim, which makes sense that he's chosen as his inner circle, the Bechor, the the multiple, I don't know, plural, but Bechor, Bechorim, Bechorot. I don't know. 
whatever plural of Bahor is, he's chosen those, we're going way back to session one here, but he's chosen those firstborn sons to be his inner circle. That actually makes a ton of Jewish sense, a ton of Jewish sense. So the James and John, what that means is, is the James and John of Peter, James and John are not the brothers. And everybody assumes they're the brothers. Uh, John, son of Zebedee, James, son of Zebedee. And, and that James is not the same James. That James is probably James, son of Alphaeus. They were more than one James in the 12. And that Peter, James, uh, Peter, James, son of Alphaeus and John, all three of them firstborn sons. And so what that means is, is that when Jesus dies and he resurrects and the church movement kind of begins post Pentecost, you end up needing some leaders, um, you're going to end up needing leaders of this new movement. And you have Peter, obviously, who's been put in charge of how much of it, Brent? Peter's over the whole deal. Peter's over all of it. Like he was the, you had the inner circle and and then you had like Peter, like he was the disciple. He was the ringleader. He was the closest to Jesus. He was the rock. He was whatever you want to call Peter. You have Peter over all of it. And then you need the next... And they're always kind of listed Peter. How's it listed, Brent? Peter, James, and John. Which you would assume would be an order. You sure. as, you can assume that in biblical literature. Peter, James, and John. So when you need a leader of the church in Jerusalem, who's the next one up? James is up. James. It also would seem that it, it fits James' makeup and design. It fits his heart and his passion. And so James becomes, James and Alphaeus becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then later in history... As this church movement spreads to Asia and Asia Minor, who is it that we said became the pastor to Asia? John's the guy. John's the guy, which just makes sense. When you kind of get all that mapped out, and then all of a sudden when you realize that, then all your passages and acts line up and all of this stuff. And James, son of Alphaeus, is is a cousin, more than more than likely a cousin to Jesus. Jesus... The whole Jesus calling disciples was kind of a family business, it seems like. You've heard me try to make the case that John the Baptist was Jesus's disciple, but John the Baptist was also Jesus's cousin. cousin. And so what we probably have here is we probably have some kind of ragtag related families, kind of on the margins, on the fringes. Who knows what the family backstory was? And Jesus works with, I say family business, tongue in cheek, there's no business, but there's a family movement and he's he's working with people that he's related with. Yeah, the business side came from Rome. All their money came from yeah, the outside. That's right. that's right. Which is an interesting little tidbit. Boy, we're on all kinds of rabbit trails today, but that's okay. I don't have a long podcast scheduled. Um, the the there is a stone quarry. We've only found one major stone quarry. Uh, Jesus's father Joseph was a what, Brent? A carpenter. A carpenter, and the word we is actually tecton, which actually doesn't mean carpenter. It means builder. Aha. Ah, so Joseph is not a carpenter as in a woodworker. He would have worked with wood, but wood was just not something you were only the really wealthy used wood and lumber. And so a tecton was actually a stonemason. Before he was a carpenter, he was a stonemason. Now there's one stone quarry that sits right in between Nazareth and Zippori. When we hear that Joseph is a tecton, it's the only stone quarry that we're aware of that we've found in that area. It was owned by Herod. Herod employed stonemasons to cut stones for his many building projects. It's very, very likely that Joseph um, was a stonemason in that stone quarry, which does that mean that Joseph leaned Herodian? It's tricky because Jesus' first wedding, he's invited to a wedding in what town? Cana. Cana, which comes from the word Cana, which is a zealot word. So everybody's always assumed that Cana was probably a zealot village. Potentially, possibly, it's debated. But is is Joseph zealot? Is Joseph 
Hasidim is Joseph Herodian. Like, we just literally don't know their family backstory. But that was a digression, but a really fun one. A really, <laughs> really fun one. Uh, so, anyway, so there's, there's your... Um, uh, let's get back so to, to the book of James. So to sum it up, who is the James of the book of James? So book of James then is your James leader of the church okay. in Jerusalem. James, son of Alphaeus. James, son of Alphaeus. James, cousin, brother to Jesus. Um, kinsman to Jesus would be the more appropriate way to translate that for not our a, understanding. Not a new idea. This is how Abraham was able to yes. uh, get away with his trickery Absolutely. in Egypt and whatever. With Sarah. Yeah. And even, uh, I'm actually memorizing Genesis right now in my disciplines. And I'm right in the passage right now where he's telling Lot, we need to separate because our herdsmen are quarreling. And he says, uh, he says to, to Lot, um, uh, don't let quarreling arise between me and you or between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are, and the text says brothers, the translation that I'm using says kinsmen. It's a Jewish translation and actually just translates it kinsmen. That's how they see the term brothers. So this is James, kinsman of Jesus leader of the church in Jerusalem, the James of Peter, James, and John. Again, that's debated, but that's my opinion, and that's how I'm teaching it. So there you go. James was a leader of uh, what a lot of times people call the Jewish church in Jerusalem. As Peter had charge over the entire Christian movement, church history tells us, corroborated by the text, that James stayed to oversee the church in Jerusalem. This is where the early church had its beginning and a very Jewish beginning it was. As the church got pushed out, it relocated its headquarters to Antioch, and Paul began to spread this movement into the Greco-Asian world of the Greeks, which would eventually be led by John, as Brent just pointed out, John the pastor to Asia, this giving us the three pillars that we talked about in which book, Brent? Oh, was that in Acts? Uh, not quite. No. Paul says, I went and visited the three pillars. Oh, uh, was that Galatians? It was Galatians. So we get those three pillars, Peter, James, and John. James took up the mantle of leading this very Jewish church centered in Jerusalem. As we mentioned before, most progressive scholarship is going to say that there is a massive disagreement, and on some level it's even evident in the New Testament, between James and Paul. Like if you remember, James and Paul have this conversation at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and it really seems obvious that James is kind of pushing back against this just open, inclusive, and they end up finding this, what what seems good to the Holy Spirit, if you remember that conversation. But uh, many will say that James and Paul were actually enemies, and that there were two different churches, like two distinct movements, the Jewish church in Jerusalem led by James, and the Gentile church in Asia and Asia Minor led by Paul. Now, I totally disagree with that, and I said that earlier in session four. Uh, I disagree with that assessment based on the witness of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, and Paul in Galatians, to be quite honest. I do believe that James probably leaned a, a different direction than Paul, <laughs> uh, but I also believe the early church led them to a union. The Holy Spirit led them in a union that preserved the church of the New Testament. So why bother with all these details? Because this is essential to understanding the context of the letter from James. People have for centuries tried to bring synergy to what appears to be opposing arguments from Paul between Paul and James about the role of obedience and faith. While some claim no contradiction exists, it certainly seems like James is trying to correct Paul's arguments about justification by faith. Because Paul spent his whole time saying, you're not saved by works, you're saved by what? 
Brent? By faith. By faith. And James seems to say... Uh, it's not good enough. You've got to have It's kind of works. the opposite. You almost feel, at times, depending on how you read it, it almost feels like James is saying quite the opposite. However, realizing that James is playing a role as the leader of a Jewish church in Jerusalem is incredibly helpful. Context is always everything, Brent. Consider the opening to the letter. Do you got the first, uh, what do we got, verse or two there? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. All right. So James writes to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So it's he's definitely not writing to just his church in Jerusalem. This is clearly a reference to a strict, but he does write to the twelve tribes. So he's definitely writing to a Jewish audience. Uh, this is a reference to a strictly Jewish audience in the world of Asia and Asia Minor. It appears to me that James is wanting to speak as the Jewish leader of a Jewish church to the Jewish participants in a rapidly changing world. James is not trying to usurp Paul's authority. James is trying to be who God has called him to be and let Paul do what God has called him to do. James is writing to Jews about what it means to live in Gentile culture and follow Jesus. I'm going to say that again even more slowly. James is writing to Jews about what it means to live in a Gentile culture and follow Jesus. Not only follow Jesus, but also to keep their original covenant with God. Like their Absolutely. Co- the covenant with the Jews hasn't changed. They're adding to it. Yes, you're absolutely right, Brent. That's a spot on point. And that matters because when James talks about works, or deeds, also known as the Hebrew word. Can you remember, Brent? Mix up Masay Not quite. Oh, there's another word. I mean, that is true. Okay. You're not wrong. But then but there's I do another M word. Mitzvot. 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 Yes. Oh, the, the title of this episode. Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Mitzvot. Yep. Title of this episode means deeds. Okay. Works or deeds is mitzvot. Not the mix up Masay which is something totally different, actually. So, in some cases, you're totally spot on for them, this audience, and yet linguistically, Etymologically, totally different word. He is not talking about the Mixat Masehatura like Paul was. When Paul talked to the Gentile church about the works of the law, he was referring to the parts of the law that made you Jewish. And the phrase we talked about in the Greek was ergunamu, right? Ergunamu. James doesn't use ergunamu. It's not what James is talking about. For Jews, this part of the law was never up for debate. In the New Testament, the Jews never argue about whether Jews should follow the law. This is never a question. What they argue about was whether or not Gentiles would follow the law. What this means is that when James talks about works and deeds, James is talking just about obedience. The letter of James is written to plead with a Jewish presence in Asia and Asia Minor, not to lose what you were just talking about, Brent, not to lose their distinctiveness amidst a bunch of Gentiles who live with a freedom that the Jews are not called to covenantally, at least not in the same way that Gentiles are. Consider how this would affect the way the audience reads this, or maybe even hears, the central passage, what many consider to be the central passage to the book of James. I'm actually going to argue against this in a moment, but the central passage to James. Give us chapter, tell us what you're going to read here after chapter 2. 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, 
if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, so at one point, it feels like James, I mean, you can definitely hear how it feels like James is kind of arguing against Paul. Like Paul's written all these letters saying, you're justified by your faith, not by your works, and not by, especially in Galatians, the ergunamu, the works of the law. But James isn't having that conversation. James is not arguing against you're not saved by your faith. James is saying to a Jewish audience, if your faith as a Jewish believer is not marked by your obedience, your covenantal relationship with God, then what kind of faith do you even have? And he's, t- he's talking to a totally different audience. Context matters, and he's having a different conversation here. Go ahead, Brett. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham, our father Abraham, just to, ah, to read his audience. Love it, absolutely. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You know, what I think is even brilliant here is James actually uses the same phrase that Paul uses. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when Paul used that phrase, he was showing how that phrase showed up before what, Brent? Before circumcision. Before circumcision. Now, is James making the, 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 the opposite argument here? Is he saying that they're justified by their circumcision? No. Not at all. He's actually saying they're justified by action. So this is not the works of the law that justify them. It's the action of being a person marked by faith that, that James is arguing for. It's, it's, it's for being people of mitzvah. It's for being people of deeds. So considering the difference between Paul and James when it comes to their definition of works and deeds, it's, it, that distinction is critical to wrestling with James' letter. I also find the reference to Rahab, by the way, a Gentile prostitute, at the end of this passage, to be interesting. I believe James is insinuating that this truth is true for all of them, Jew and Gentile alike, which is why he doesn't go to circumcision. He goes to a faith in action. While I don't believe James is usurping Paul's message of faith and justification, I do believe James is offering his Jewish perspective to the conversation to make sure that this early church doesn't lose its distinctiveness. Um, And as we consider this letter, may we also be moved to remember that the words mean very little unless they are incarnated in our actions. May this be true for all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, Brent, I I can't close this episode without pointing out a few things. I remember sitting uh, with, with Mr. Paul Patterson, the same Paul that did our infographic a couple episodes ago for Hebrews. Remember how? much I nerded out over that infographic. I remember sitting in Paul's office and we we were whiteboarding all these things that Paul had found in the book of James. And I have to tell you, like the more and more we dug, the book of James is brilliant. I mean, from a literary perspective, it, it's incredible. It's amazing. Um, 
there's all kinds of things going on, all kinds of references, uh, how he's using the term uh, brothers, how he's using the term um, consider, how there are all kinds of words and terms that he's using repeatedly in a pattern. It's, It's crazy. There are so many references that are unique in the Septuagint to the story of Noah, which is interesting because why, why do you think, why would James be referencing intentionally the story of Noah in this letter? Well, the Noahic covenant is what they decided the Gentiles need to hold themselves to. Exactly. And so this, this world of Noah, these Jews live in the world of Noah. And so here is James, but, but why is he choosing that? to? Uh, I, and there's a lot of work done about this. I believe James is chiastic. I, there can't even, there might even be a million chiasms at play in James. Actually, when you start to study it, I even thought about linking some articles in the show notes, but there's so much good material out there that I don't, I don't even want to pick. And we get so many emails like wanting small group, like resources and ideas. Here's an idea for your small group for this discussion. Just go Google like the literary nature of the book of James or chiasms in the book of James you know, chiasmus and James, go Google those terms and just watch the, the dissertations, the articles, the abstracts, the, the thing, the posts that, that will come up are, and, and find people that, you know, have little letters after their name, you know, PhD, that kind of thing, MA, um, MD, um, that, that talk about MDiv is what I meant by that, not MD, but, you know, find those people and read the stuff that they're writing about the book of James. Like it's, it's absolutely crazy. It's just so totally good. I think, my personal opinion, I can think even Paul and I kind of went back and forth on this. And there's a lot of different articles, and I've, I've seen really respectable articles showing the literary science behind both cases. My personal opinion is that the center of the chiasm of James lies in, uh, let's see, what passage did I give you there, Brent? Chapter 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. I think that one, that James's point in writing this letter is that there is a tension between the Jewish believers and these Gentile believers in the world of Asia and Asia Minor, which probably shouldn't be all that hard to um, comprehend that in, in a religious setting, it was difficult for the people that had given their lives to this for centuries to accept all these newcomers who weren't even held to the same rules. And I think that one of James kind of points underneath it all, his drosh, if you will, his treasure buried in the heart of this chiasm is you guys have to be very, very careful how you're talking about these Gentiles. Because the way you're talking about these Gentiles in the world of Asia and Asia Minor is really undermining the work of God and what God's trying to do. So if, you, if your faith, if your Jewish faith, I think James is saying, is not put on display by your hospitality, by and just think of the things that James is talking about in his book. I mean, how can you say to somebody who comes into your church, if they're wealthy, well, come have a nice seat, but if they're poor, like, you know, here's this you know, ridiculous seat over here. 
James is making your generosity, your hospitality, your righteousness has to extend to the Gentiles. And what's really undermining this whole movement and this mission of hospitality and radical inclusion is actually the way you're talking and the way you're gossiping and the way you're slandering the people that God is trying to work. Now, some people think the whole book is about wealth and the way that we're using wealth. And there's a whole nother uh, theory behind what the chiasm is. Another theory puts it later in the. Do I give? Do I? Did I give you another passage out of chapter three there, Brent? Yeah, uh, right at the end. But this the, is another theory of where the center of the chiasm could be. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Yeah, and that's another great possibility of what could be taking place there in the book of James. So just some fun literary science taking place there. Did I give you any other passages? That's it. That's it. Excellent. Well, there's some really, I mean, there's some really fun stuff. And if you find somebody outlining a James chiasm on the internet, uh, and it's and it's respectable. It's it's done well. I, just pay attention to the layers. R- remember that the layers of a chiasm will often form the argument. So layer A and A one, it, it that's like the first point, and then and then the theme of B and B one is the next point, and the theme of C and C one, and then D and and if you lay out these points kind of back to back to back, as it moves towards the center, you can actually see what the author's kind of like overarching meta point is. And and I just really love it. There, there are some brilliant, brilliant things when it comes to the book of James. I, I can tell you this. I'm really, really confident. I'm not as confident in like, say, the chiasm or the center or those kind of things. I'm very, very confident that James is, is a literary genius in this, in this letter. Like he's done some just brilliant, intentional things within the Greek and, and I think all the, his Jewish audience, which you would expect. A Jewish teacher to a Jewish audience, they're not going to waste the time in the parchment. It's it's going to be brilliantly crafted. So there's some stuff there. Enjoy it for your – go find it, talk about it, and enjoy it with your discussion group. Written in Greek, though, uh, because it is to the nations scattered around – or the yeah the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So And their Bible was the Septuagint. So they were even even in the Galilee – scholarship says their Bible in the Galilee was the Septuagint. That was the Bible. That was the translation, if you will, that they all packed around. They were they were Septuagint-only, like King James-only people. So, Septuagint-only people. So they were all working in Greek anyway. Absolutely. And James is, def- like when Paul and I were doing our work in James, like it was very clearly in my mind, very much built on Septuagint science. And even Matthew, like I've always said that Matthew was written in what? what, what, what in Hebrew. In Hebrew. But, and the argument against that in scholarship is that all the quotations of scripture are coming directly out of the Septuagint. So it couldn't have been written in Hebrew, it had to be written in Greek, which I completely disagree with. Because if it's written in Hebrew, they're still using the Greek Bible as their Bible. So when he's quoting scripture, it would be in Greek. Um, so, and I don't know how that worked. I don't know if it was literally in Greek on the scroll when he quoted scripture or whether or not it's just, he, he translated it back into the Hebrew. I don't know how Matthew would have done that if it was written in Hebrew, but... It's not a good argument to explain why Matthew's written in Greek. Septuagint was their Bible. Yep. All right. There you go. Well, uh, that'll do it for this episode of James. Uh, pretty pretty good little uh, setup there. Yeah. 30 good minutes. One. Good conversation. Yeah. Uh, a few rabbit trails to, to get us started. But yes. yeah, it, it did all, it does all play in. Like, if you don't understand what James were talking about, then it's like, well, 
And I really what debated, like, here? do we want to get into all the chiasms, all the juicy stuff, all the rabbit trails, all the because there's a ton of them here in James. And I'm like, isn't that what we do? Isn't that like the nature of the Bayma podcast? And and yet, no, at this point in the Bayma podcast, in session four, we've now learned some of these tools. We've learned some of these questions. What I'm trying to do is to just give you some basics, point us in the right direction, kind of give us the the main context behind these New Testament letters and, and then turn you loose. And we could, I mean, as we went through Galatians verse by verse and Romans verse by verse and Matthew verse by verse, we could do that with everything. And, certainly do and we'd be here for 30 or 40 years. It's and true. I'm not saying we won't be here for 30 or 40 years, but <laughs> at yeah. some point we have to be able to step back and see the whole picture. So we got to, that's right. We got to, you know, blow through some of these yep. uh, faster. There so. you go. All right. Well, if you have any questions, if you come up with anything interesting about James you want to share with us, whatever, then get a hold of us on Twitter. Marty's at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And go to BaymaDiscipleship.com. Sign up for the Bayma uh, Messenger newsletter. You can join our Slack group, discuss with other listeners around the country, get in a discussion group locally, all sorts of ways to get involved and dig into the book of James together. There's plenty of stuff to explore. So thanks for joining us on the Bayma Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. That's may have to edit that neck pop out. Ooh, <laughs> holy smokes. If you can hear that, put that in the bloopers. Holy cow. <laughs> Man.